Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with longtime Pomona College professor, Sam Yamashita, the Henry E. Sheffield Professor of History. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. That's, that's good to that. see you in these strange times. <laughs> um, so how are you adjusting to life in the time of pandemic? Well, I've been on leave all semester. And so it's been like being an advanced graduate student. I'm, I, I work on project A in the morning and I work on project B in the evening, have dinner, drink a lot of wine, <laughs> take a nap, wake up listen to Brian Williams, and I'm reading uh, A Very Stable Genius by uh, Rucker and Leonig, and it's a fabulous book on, on our dear president. I mean, really wonderful. It, it should win a prize. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, cramped our eating out style because we usually go into LA on weekends to eat at our favorite restaurants, but sadly, uh, some of them have just closed. And so I think the food scene in LA is going to be very different. Well, not just LA, all, all over the US and maybe yeah. the world. Uh, and I'll talk later about a piece that I just finished on fine dining in the US. And I really think that it's, it's, it's going to become a kind of period piece about a particular moment in American culinary history that is ending at the moment. Wow. So, so yeah, I'm, we're, we're healthy and... Uh, I'm swimming twice a day, which is great. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, I'm still healthy. So. <laughs> That's great to hear, Sam. Um, you grew up in Hawaii. I did. Um, can you tell us a little bit of your about your upbringing and uh, what were you like as a child and what were you interested in? Well, I was born in Honolulu, but I was raised in a beautiful beach town called Kailua. But we didn't live on the beach. We lived one mile inland. And I, I had a great childhood. My friends remember me as being really naughty, that I was very good, very good at getting into mischief. Sam, I've known you about 20 years now. I'm not terribly surprised by that. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Remain <laughs> consistent. At some level, I'm still the same. I mean, we would, I would invent the craziest things. Like we, uh, we found a huge mirror and we went up onto the roof and we would see people walking on the street about a hundred yards away. And we would hit them with the, uh, the, the, the beat. <laughs> we, we had seen this done in, in some famous film set in, in classical times in the Mediterranean where somebody used mirrors to set the sails of ships on fire. We thought, ah, Maybe we can get somebody to combust. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. I mean, I really was yeah. naughty. But I, um, you know, I spent a lot of time going to the beach. Both my parents worked in Honolulu. So after school, I was on my own and, and I had a bicycle. And, uh, you know, I would do every kind of thing. Uh, uh, but, you know, it was a great childhood. But the problem was that, that I wasn't studying. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was really indifferent to school. 
And what saved me, uh, as I mentioned to uh, Stale when she interviewed me a while back, is that I wanted to leave home. And there were only two possibilities. Uh, I could go to a Hawaiian boarding school that's very famous. And the other was to go to a, another prep school that had a great baseball team. And so I, I claimed that I wanted to play baseball, serious baseball. And I couldn't go to the first school because I didn't have any Hawaiian blood. So I went to the second prep school and I boarded and I had to study every night for two hours. And that, that rescued my academic career. And I was able <laughs> to get into college. <laughs> uh, and that's where I started, started to study Latin. I mean, Mark has seen the, I think the piece that I wrote on studying classical languages and things. But yeah, I had a great childhood. My, my parents loved each other a lot and they were really uh, preoccupied with each other. They had eloped. And um, so I, I had a lot of freedom and I had a younger brother uh, whom I tyrannized and, uh, uh, but I think he's better for it. <laughs> it's for his own good. Of course, and, and it was all daughter, for his own good. daughter got into Pomona College and graduated from Pomona in 2004. But uh, yeah, no, I had, a, I had a really wonderful childhood. We grew up in a completely multi-ethnic neighborhood. Uh, Hawaii was becoming a truly integrated place. The old segregated public school system uh, was abolished in 1947. So the public schools I went to for primary and middle school were, were extremely well integrated. Um, I had really wonderful teachers. Uh, and no, I, I feel very lucky to have grown up in Hawaii at that time. It's a very different place now. Mm -hmm. So I know you mentioned baseball. I know baseball um, played a role in your life. Uh, you've had, you, you have some really nice stories about baseball. So I'm just going to ask you if you could tell us a few of those. Well, you know, my father had been a famous baseball player in Honolulu, high school baseball star. And he had played for the Nisei army unit that he was a part of, the first Nisei unit formed during World War II. And, and they trained in Wisconsin and played minor league teams in Wisconsin. And, and uh, they even played in, in Mississippi, or they played in Arkansas, one of the concentration camps. And then when they got to North Africa, they played uh, their last games. And uh, uh, so and when my father came home to Hawaii in 1946, uh, he coached for a while and then became a professional umpire. So I was raised in a, a household that was focused on baseball. And baseball was also almost a religion in the Japanese American community, that it was taken very seriously. And so at age uh, eight, I got my first baseball uniform and my father spent some time teaching me how to put on the leggings in a particular way so that if I slid hard in the second base with my spikes up, you know, my leggings wouldn't come undone. <laughs> uh, and, and I played Little League Baseball uh, for three years. And then I played what's called Babe Ruth Baseball. And I went to Mid-Pacific to play baseball, but I was only 4'11 and 110 pounds. And what was I, your position? Well, they tried me all over because I was so small. Uh, 
I, I, when I was in Little League, I played in the outfield, I caught, I played first base. Uh, and in high school, they used me mainly in right field, uh, but it was pathetic. I mean, I was so small and had so little power. And when I came up to bat, everybody would come in. <laughs> and so eventually I quit. I didn't even play the whole first season. And I found that because I was so light, uh, I was a good long distance runner. And I became uh, a top 10 runner in Honolulu. Had two first place finishes against Punahou, our arch rivals, where Obama went. And uh, I even ran in college briefly. So my baseball career morphed into a long distance running career. And I even, as a freshman at McAllister, where I went to college, I ran in the NCAA, which I was quite impressed by, although I mentioned this to Kirk Reynolds, our, um, our cross country coach, it is Kirk Reynolds, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out that he's the division three cross country historian. So he looked me up. And he said, oh, I see, I see you placed 167th out of 175. <laughs> so I, stopped, I stopped telling that story. <laughs> it, was real, it was a real thrill to run in the NCAAs, uh, you know, as a first year. Now, you also show me some photos of you as a child with some baseball greats. Um, how did that happen? Well, my father, uh, when he gave up coaching after a couple of years, he became a baseball umpire, serious baseball umpire. And I think he was pretty good. He's, he's, he umpired until he was 91. And it was very well regarded. I think he had a good eye and had a good strike zone. And so when the Yankees and Dodgers and Cardinals came to Hawaii after the World Series on their way to Japan to play in the top Japanese teams, they would play a couple of games in Honolulu. And my father was asked every year to be one of the six umpires in the game. And so he would arrange, uh, he had a friend who had a brother who was a uh, journalist, a, a, a press photographer who had a real camera. And he would arrange for him to take photographs of me. I think Mark has seen the one of me standing between Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella. Uh, before the game, my father said, meet me at the third base dugout before the game. And I did. And and he said, I'd like Jackie and Roy to come out and uh, have their pictures taken with my son. And that's the photograph that was assessed on Antiques Roadshow. And apparently Robinson and Campanella didn't get along that well because Campy was biracial and he could stay at the team hotel, whereas Robinson had to stay at at a Blacks only hotel. So it's one of the few photographs of them together. And as a result, it was worth, I don't know, four to $6,000 nine years ago, and it's now in my safety deposit box. So that was, that's probably the most famous photograph. And then uh, I, I have photographs taken with Casey Stengel, with Mickey Mantle, with Roger Maris, uh, I'm sitting on the bench between Eddie Matthews and Don, uh, uh, Bob Turley, and and uh, Lou Burdett. It was uh, right after the, 
Milwaukee had played in the World Series and Burdett even gave me his cap, which like a <laughs> dummy, which like a dummy, I wore to Little League practice. And of course it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, but I, I have the photograph of me with Mantle in, in my bathrooms on the wall, you know, in my baseball shrine. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I had expected to play for the Yankees. That was my that was my dream, and when I was only four ten, four eleven, and one hundred ten pounds at the age of fourteen, I gave up those dreams. And uh, uh, somebody from Hawaii, a Japanese American from Hawaii named Len Sakata, would go on to play for the Yankees. So I feel as though my my dream was fulfilled by somebody by somebody else. There you go, vicariously through him. Vicariously, the best way. I like that. Sam, you mentioned that your 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 school suffered a little bit and it was saved when you went to a boarding school. Um, tell us about when when that interest in history was sparked. Was it was it when you went to school to boarding school or where was where did you find that? I, I think in boarding school I had really good history teachers. I had a really great sophomore US history teacher named Ruth Engelbrecht, who was from Iowa. And then I had a really good world history teacher, I guess in my sophomore year, named Bob Ferrian from Seattle. And Ruth Engelbrecht taught me when I was a junior. And it was in my first year in college, uh, McAllister was on the 414 plan. So the one was one month between fall and spring semester. And I took a course, signed up for a course called The Great Books of History. And I expected that I'd be reading Thucydides and Herodotus. I don't know why I thought I would understand them and, and enjoy reading them. And I showed up at the office of the professor, who was a man named Boyd Schaefer, who was a really fine historian. He had been editor of the American Historical Review for a long time, and then came to McAllister. Uh, and he said, oh, here's the list of books that we'll be reading, and I'd like you to choose 12. And they were all modern historical works. And he helped me choose some really wonderful classic works. And so I read a work by Carl Becker, great European historian. Um, Becker is famous for a work called The Heavenly City of the 18th Century Enlightenment. And the book that I read by Becker was called The Declaration of Independence. And it was so clearly and beautifully written. And Schaefer explained to me how Becker wrote. Becker wrote one sentence at a time. He would write a sentence at the top of a legal pad and then rewrite it all the way down the pad. I read uh, Henri Perens, Mohammed and Charlemagne. I read Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s Age of Jackson. I ended up reading 12 books in four weeks and writing a four to five page review of each. Of course, I'd never read that much before ever. And it meant sitting in the library from 9 when it opened until 9 p.m. when it closed. And I essentially outlined every book um, as a way of retaining the information and then wrote the essays. And I still have them. And I look at them occasionally to see how bad I was when I was the first year. <laughs> and after Schaefer's class that January, I took uh, the introductory modern European history class which I liked, 
And I still expected to be a political science major and go to law school until the fall of my sophomore year when I took a state and local government course taught by the top political science professor McAllister. And it was, it was essentially a law course. And it was so boring that I lasted barely a week. And I went over to history and became a history major. And of course, I assumed that I'd come back, go back to Hawaii and do what my parents did. My mother worked at the Bank of Hawaii. My father worked in payroll at Hawaiian Pineapple, which became Dole. And I assumed that that I'd go to work at one of the banks and I'd aspire to be become a bank manager, which a lot of my childhood friends became. And um, so that was the beginning of my sort of interest in history. I liked it and I was pretty good at it. So um, you specialized in Confucianism. It's um, important. Is that correct, or is that well? Well, actually, I, as a junior, I studied in Tokyo, International Christian University, where our students go, the ones who go to Tokyo, and and I developed an interest in Japanese history, and I thought I might do immigration history, and so I applied to places that had good immigration historians. And I was also interested in intellectual history because my uh, advisor, Boyd Schaefer, was a kind of intellectual historian. And so I went to Michigan intending to study with a famous uh, American uh, immigration historian named John Hyam. But Hyam was so forbidding that uh, I ended up not doing immigration history and instead doing intellectual history and at that point, the plan was to write a master's thesis on uh, German romantic intellectuals and then to write a PhD on Japanese intellectuals. And that's where my interest in, in Confucianism and Confucian academies and Confucian scholars really began. So tell us more about Confucianism. Why is it such an important part of history throughout Asia? Well, it... it um, if you think of Plato and Aristotle and the philosophical tradition that they engendered, Confucius engendered a comparable philosophical tradition in, uh, in China, and that spread to Japan and Korea and, and Vietnam. And once the uh, Chinese began to uh, uh, test applicants for government positions, uh, they, they would give them what were called the civil service examinations, um, beginning really from the eighth century. Um, what you had to study and essentially memorize were the Chinese classics. So there were the six books, six classics, and then many dozens of commentaries on those classics, all written in classical Chinese. And so if you were literate in East Asia and Vietnam uh, before World War II, you had studied the Confucian classics. And this was true of certainly of Korean intellectuals. It was true of Japanese intellectuals. It's a little bit like uh, all literate, well-educated Europeans and Americans before 1900, knowing Latin and Greek and having read uh, the classics. 
its importance is largely uh, due to its being foundational, uh, both for uh, well, service and, and for any kind of intellectual or literary work. So, um, you know, given Pomona's craze over the number 47, I have to ask you about the first book on your resume, the one that you helped to translate titled The 4-7 Debate. <laughs> you can tell us a little bit about what that was about. The 4-7 Debate uh, took place in Korea in the 16th century. And, and the four and the seven refer to famous passages in the Chinese classics. And, and the four refers to what were called the four beginnings, uh, which referred to the, the beginnings of four virtues that every person was thought to have. And, and seven refers to the seven emotions, which every person was thought to have as well. And, and, and the four beginnings and the seven emotions are first articulated in the work of Confucius' major successor, a man named Mencius. And, and so the debate that takes place in Korea is really a debate about the meaning of the four and the seven and whether virtue, moral virtue, is within you at birth or whether it has to be developed uh, in the realm of emotions. And so these two uh, really impressive Korean scholars had a debate that went on for two or three years. And I can't remember the total number of letters they exchanged, but there must have been uh, close to 100. And Korea by the 16th century was highly Confucianized and its intellectuals, its elite, was extremely well-versed in classical Chinese and in the Confucian tradition and, and the various commentaries on, on the classics. And so the two men, the two leaders in the debate, uh, go back, argue back and forth on the question of the four beginnings and the seven emotions. And their classical Chinese was probably the most difficult classical Chinese I'd ever read. I mean, it, was, it had a kind of purity that I hadn't seen before. And I was brought into the translation as a Japanese specialist. Uh, the leader of the group was Du Wei Ming, Professor Du at Harvard, who has been the leading uh, expert on Confucianism outside China. And then there were uh, three or four Korean scholars. And so we would meet uh, once a year, usually in November, uh, for three years running, we would meet in Cambridge and, and meet all day, Friday and Saturday. And um, it was always the Saturday of the Michigan-Ohio State game. So it was always very frustrating for me to have to be pouring over Confucian texts while Michigan was playing Ohio State. I'm a Michigan graduate, you see. So that's what the 4-7 debate is. And... Um, yeah, it was really a wonderful project, wonderful project. Sam, in the 90s, your research focus shifted to the 20th century, more specifically to Japan during the war years. What sparked that change? Well, I've been teaching modern, a course called Modern Japan really since 1977. And there really wasn't 
there weren't any primary source materials that had been translated into English that represented the views of ordinary Japanese. And I was really curious. I thought, you know, we, we need to know what ordinary Japanese felt during the war. I mean, were they all fanatics? Were they all willing to die for the emperor? And, and I wanted to find that out. So I began to collect diaries on my annual trips to Japan. And, and um, I would I initially used the library at Dosha University, where I was on sabbatical twice. But I used mostly the National Diet Library in Tokyo, which is the Bibliothèque Nationale of, of Japan. And over the course of 15 or 20 years, I collected about 210 diaries and 50 memoirs. And what I realized about 10 years ago was that it was actually cheaper to buy used copies of the diaries than to pay for copies uh, made at the diet library. And, and so I began to read these diaries and, and Mark knows that I uh, read the classical Chinese texts every morning from 1969 until 1980, until actually 19, maybe it was 93. And I simply switched the diaries for the classical texts. And so I would read uh, diaries every morning for about an hour uh, from, I think it was July 4th, 1992 or three, uh, uh, really, well, I'm still doing it. And so I got pretty good at, well, at, at knowing what, learned a lot about what Japanese felt during the war. And, and what I discovered was that not all Japanese were completely loyal. There was a lot of resistance to government regulations and government policies. For example, Japanese were not supposed to buy food on the black market, but many people in the cities did in desperation. Japanese also were not supposed to buy directly from farmers, but uh, a lot of people did. In fact, on any day in Tokyo, uh, 1944 and 45, approximately 20 to 30,000 people left the city to go to the countryside to buy directly from farmers. It was the only way for them to stay alive. Uh, people also stole things. Uh, they sometimes stole food. Uh, children would steal each other's lunches. But more typically, people stole items that could be sold. And they would then use the money to buy food or other uh, commodities that, that they needed. Uh, in about 2001, I was having lunch with the director of the University of Hawaii Press, Pat Crosby, and she expressed an interest in publishing some of those diaries. And so I picked eight, uh, three diaries by men, two diaries by women, one diary by a teenage girl who had been mobilized for war work, and two diaries by uh, evacuated schoolchildren. And of course, I'd already translated the parts that I intended to publish, but then I needed to get permission to publish them. And, and I worried about this because although my 
Japanese is pretty good. You know, I'm a kind of a suspicious character. I look Japanese, but I speak with an accent and, and I have the part <laughs> of a foreign devil. So I, I, had to hire, I had to hire someone to act as my agent. And I had a friend who was teaching at ICU in Tokyo who had a graduate student who had finished and who was unemployed. And she also was the daughter of a doctor, so she could speak polite Japanese. And I knew her a little from a sabbatical in Tokyo. And I knew that she was pretty stubborn. And so I hired her to get the permissions for those diaries, and she got all of them. And uh, my, my strategy in hiring her actually worked. So I'm truly indebted to her for um, get, getting those permissions. Otherwise, you know, there would have been fewer diaries in, in my book and a, a less good cross-section of the population. Well, that's the story behind my work on diaries. I, I'm working now, I'm reading diary entries from around the time that Japan surrendered. And I'm hoping to read as many as, as I can uh, to see how people responded to the news of the surrender. I'm also trying to gauge, trying to determine why Japanese were so loyal. And I have a theory about why they were loyal. And, and my theory might explain why Japanese don't feel much guilt about the war in the way that Germans did. And so I'm currently reading the diary of a man in his 60s or 70s. And uh, it's just fascinating to, to read someone's account of how they're feeling uh, on the day of the surrender or how they're, how they're feeling in the days afterwards. Uh, and I really feel as though, you know, I'm dealing with real people and, and real feelings. And, and this is something that's priceless, in my opinion. I value individuals, I va value individual moral action, and this is my way of, of you know, uh, walking the talk and, and living what I believe in. Uh, to me, you know, maybe the most intriguing part of all of that uh, was your work in translating the letters and diaries of kamikaze pilots. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a group of people that I think most of us find difficult to understand, you know, sort of like the suicide bombers in the Middle East. Um, we think of them as some kind of religious zealots. Or, right. Right. And hard to even think of them as people like us because, you know, their, their choice was so alien to us. Um, what drew you to that and what did you find about them? Well, I was attracted to the, the kamikaze phenomenon or the special attack phenomenon. because so I thought if I wanted to know what Japanese felt about the war, that would be a good place to start. And what I didn't realize at first was that the last letters that they wrote uh, were based on templates that they were given. Secondly, their diaries were submitted to their officers. And so I had to figure out how to read material that was essentially being censored. And, and I did figure out how to do it. 
Uh, and often uh, during a pilot's training, uh, his officer's comments would also appear. So I got a good sense of what values were being reinforced by the pilot's superiors and, and how the pilots themselves responded. And the real prize uh, find was the complete diary of an army pilot who began, who went into the Air Corps when he was 16 and who flies until uh, August 15th when he's scheduled to go off on a special attack at 8 p.m. on August 15th. And of course, Japan surrendered at noon. And his diary is extremely uh, revealing because he, unlike university students who were drafted and who became special attack pilots, you know, he couldn't read German, he didn't play the piano, he hadn't read Hegel and, and, and uh, uh, you know, hadn't read essentially the great German thinkers. Uh, he was just an ordinary guy who wanted to become a pilot. And so his frustrations in the last year of the war are really revealing because he begins to have what we would call psychological problems and uh, and to have real doubts, especially as some of his fellow pilots are killed in training accidents. And uh, so that that was, I mean, if I were younger, I would translate the whole diary and publish it. But I used his diary a lot in uh, a chapter in my book, Daily Life in Wartime Japan. So that that phenomenon has been really interesting to study. Sam, tell us how you approach your your translation work. Um, even in Western languages, you know, there's difficult decisions that you have to make about style, connotations, rhythm. How do you approach your work? For well, let me let me tell you how I did the eight diaries that I that I published. I would translate them one line at a time, and so on a, a note card, I'd have, I'd, you know, each sentence would be numbered, and and I translate them as literally as I can initially. And then I, I type them up. And then at, at the later stages, after I've established that my translations are accurate, I try to recover the, the texture and rhythm of the original uh, text. And so in the case of the children, for example, well, I found that I had to stop using polysyllabic Latinate words, but instead to use a kind of nine-year-old girl's language uh, or an 11-year-old boy's language. And, and so whenever possible, I tried to capture the, the level of abstraction in the originals. I also tried uh, you know, to recover the rhythm of the original. Uh, the women's diaries were the hardest to translate because they were the most complex thinkers and the most literate. Uh, the servicemen's diaries were the easiest to translate because they were pretty, pretty matter-of-factly and pretty functional. Um, so each, each diary manuscript uh, went through many stages, easily five or six different stages. And um, 
you know, a translation is at some level an interpretation. So, you know, I can't claim that they're perfect in every way. They're simply attempts to, to duplicate what I found in the original texts. So recently you've made another big change in uh, your research topics uh, and you've managed to bring together what I know to be two longtime loves of yours, um, Asian cultures and good food. Um, can you tell us about that? Well, as, as Mark may, as you may remember from my uh, interview that Snail did, uh, it started in 2008 or nine when I was just finished lunch with Pat Crosby, my editor at the University of Hawaii Press. It was a wonderful lunch at a beautiful hotel in Waikiki, and we were both feeling no pain. And uh, as we were walking back to the car, she said, how would you like to write a history of Japanese food? And I was already you know, in my early 60s, and had I been younger, I would have said, sure, yes, right away. But I knew that I needed to think about this. And I said, Pat, uh, let me think about this. And so I thought about what sources, primary sources I would use, how I would organize it, uh, what kind of narratives I would write, uh, and essentially what audience I would, would pitch it to. So after half a year, I, I wrote her back by email and I said, sure, I'll give this a try. But you and I know that you'll be long retired by the time I finish this. And she retired about five years ago and I'll finish maybe around 2025. So that was the, the sort of existential choice that I made early on. And I began to use the World War II diary material to write about food in wartime Japan. And I wrote three papers, two of which have been published and a third I'm about to send off. I wrote the first on the food situation of the evacuated children, which was dire, I and mean, they were slowly starving to death. And the second paper uh, was on the food situation on the home front. And the third paper is also on the home front situation, but it highlights uh, how desperate people were. And the third paper is called Hunger on the Home Front. So I, I wrote those three papers, and then I was having to visit my widowed father in Hawaii uh, three or four times a year after my mother died in 1999. And I thought, you know, I need to be able to write off these trips. I think I'll start, <laughs> I'll start interviewing chefs. And so my first interview was in 2009, and I would interview a couple of chefs on each trip. And I also interviewed farmers, retailers, uh, aquamarinists, uh, food writers. And I interviewed 36 people altogether between 2009 and 2015. And, uh, you know, those were interesting because I'd never done interviews before. And the interviews initially were an hour to 90 minutes long, which is far too long. And uh, I got a good sense of what I thought was going on with this food movement called Hawaii Regional Cuisine. 
And I, one of my former students, Madeline Shu, who's a brilliant historian of Asian America who teaches at University of Texas, Austin, she organized a panel in 2011 on Asian food and invited me to be on it. So I presented some of my findings uh, on that panel and gave a paper entitled The Significance of Hawaii Regional Cuisine in Post-Colonial Hawaii. And somebody heard it who wanted to publish it. And so it was included in the first anthology on Asian American food. Uh, it's an anthology called Eating Asian America, a food studies reader published by NYU Press in 2013. And the editor of that uh, anthology also was the editor, co-editor of a food series that Hawaii published called Food in Asia and the Pacific. And he and the other editor uh, persuaded me to submit the manuscript uh, for that series, which I did in 2016 and it was published uh, last April. Hawaii Regional Cuisine, the food movement that changed the way Hawaii eats. So that's essentially the story of, you know, my interest in food studies. I, while I was working on the Hawaii Regional Cuisine book, I discovered an interesting moment in Los Angeles food history. Uh, in the early 1980s, chefs in LA were making something that one of them called Euro-Asian cuisine, and it's a term that he claimed to invent in 1980. And so Wolfgang Puck was doing this. There were a bunch of uh, Japanese chefs sent from Japan who were doing Franco-Japanese cuisine. And then Roy Yamaguchi, the man who invented the concept of Euro-Asian cuisine, and Nobu Matsuhisa, uh, they all opened restaurants between 1982 and about 1986, five or six. And, and so they were, they were doing this Euro-Asian cuisine. So I went back to it in 2017 and 2018 and gave a paper at a food conference called, I don't know, The Asian Impact on Fine Dining in the US. And then the more research I did, the more I realized that a really important moment had occurred in American food history. And it's what I call the Japanese turn in fine dining. And I was able to do some, well, let me tell you how it started. It started when Japanese cooks and trainees began to go to France uh, to work in the kitchens of the great chefs. And this began in the 1960s and 70s and it continued, it really continues to the present. But a lot of chefs, leading French chefs, noticed that there were suddenly more Japanese. Uh, and one of them, a famous French chef in New York City, uh, Daniel Bouloud said, yeah, there was this strange thing. The Japanese would come, they would study our cuisine, and they would go home and they would replicate it. And then other chefs that were interviewed and that I interviewed said, yeah, strange thing. There were all these Japanese cooks in the kitchens of the great restaurants, French restaurants in Europe and in the US. And what also happened as part of that of development is that the top French chefs 
began to go to Japan and, and were introduced to Japanese folk cuisine. And so all the great French chefs, Robuchon, uh, Paul Bocuse, Alain Chapard, Alain Al, uh, Chappelle, uh, all of them, uh, Bernard Loiseau, began to go to Japan several times a year, and 10 of them opened restaurants in Japan. And so not only were Japanese going to Europe, but the French chefs were also going to Japan. And, and this is the beginning of what I, what I call uh, the Japanese turn. And so if the first stage is this exchange of chefs between Japan and Europe in the 1960s and 70s, the second stage takes place in Los Angeles as uh, well-trained chefs begin to cook a kind of Franco-Japanese or Italo-Japanese cuisine in Los Angeles. And then it goes to New York and I really date it in New York from 1985. Uh, there was a, a restaurateur, famous restaurateur named Barry Wine, uh, who had a restaurant called Giraffe, Giraffe in New York, which is the best and most expensive restaurant. And he discovered Japanese cuisine. And so his cuisine becomes very Japanese from 1985 onward. And so in LA and New York, you have similar developments that run through the 90s. And then in the 21st century, uh, a fourth stage begins when Japanese ingredients and Japanese culinary techniques, Japanese culinary concepts become pretty widespread. And I argue even that Japanese haute cuisine is naturalized in, in the US. And I'm arguing that it ends in 2020. And so I have a paper coming out uh, this month called The Japanese Turn in Fine Dining, 1980 to 2020, that will appear in Gastronomica, one of the leading food journals. And, and I present uh, my arguments about the Japanese Turn. Uh, it's, it's been great fun. So that's where that conversation with Pat Crosby after lunch in 2008 or nine uh, has led. That's a great turn you took too. No, no, it's it's been great. It's been wonderful. You mentioned uh, the book that you're working on. Um, that's going to be out in 2025. The history of, of Japanese food. Japanese food. Any other projects that you're working on? You said you're on. Well, so that'll be the last book, and I'm. I'd like to write a book on. Um, I don't know what to call it. Uh, in, tentatively, I might call it the Asian turn in fine dining along the Pacific Rim. That I've been tracking uh, fine dining establishments in Japan, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, uh, California, even Mexico and Peru and Korea now. And something really interesting is happening. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe it yet, but the chefs in New Zealand and Australia, for example, are using many more uh, Asian ingredients and Asian techniques. And these are the top Michelin-starred restaurants there. The French-trained Japanese and Korean chefs uh, are also 
making a French cuisine that uses Asian ingredients and techniques. And the same thing is happening in San Francisco at Bennu, this fantastic uh, Korean-American uh, Korean restaurant. Uh, it's happening at Kato, this fabulous uh, Taiwanese-American restaurant uh, in Santa Monica. Um, I'm not quite sure how to describe it. Essentially what happens is that chefs who are trained in French cuisine end up making their own cuisines and using local ingredients that, that really reflect the local flora and fauna and, and they come up with something very different. Enrique, Enrique Olvera is a leading Michelin-starred Mexican chef who has a restaurant in Mexico City called Pujols. He has a top 50 restaurant in New York called Cosma. And he's a very good example that when he first opened his restaurant in Mexico City, he had trained at the Culinary Institute of America. And so he made stuff that he thought he should be making. And I think he was criticized. People said, Enrique, you know, why don't you make your own food? This food seems so foreign. And that marked a change in his whole orientation and so he began to, to make uh, dishes that reflected uh, the local flora and fauna. He's about to open a restaurant in LA, or he was, I don't know if he's still going to. But that's, that's probably the next book. And the Japanese history, history of Japanese food will be the last book, I think. But it's still alive, not good work. <laughs> So on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking about Asian history and food history with uh, Professor Sam Yamashita. Um, thanks again, Sam. Thank you, Mark and Patty and Jeff. This has been good. That's Thank been you, fun. Sam. Glad we're able to make the connection. That I was able to make the connection. <laughs> <laughs> we were always. <laughs> Thank you very much. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.